Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, what animal in the world? The world. Do you think has the strongest bite? Hmm. I don't know. Okay. Those How do you measure? Guess. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that's what grad students are for, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm going to go through the top 10 animal bites that will completely destroy you. This is from the website Listverse. And here's the list of the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites in the animal kingdom. Mm. Now, a couple notations here. One animal that is excluded from the list is the great white shark. And that is because their bite is just too hard and expensive to measure. And as the article explains, there's a lack of research on their bite. Now, another animal not on the list that should be noted is the Tasmanian devil. The Tasmanian devil has the most powerful bite relative to its body size of any living animal tested at 200 PSI or pounds per square inch, followed closely by the African painted dogs Remember a couple of years ago, Peter, a two-year-old child fell into the wild dog enclosure at the Pittsburgh Zoo. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. The mother put her kid, the two-year-old kid, on top of a railing at the edge of the viewing deck so the kid could get a better view of the wild dogs. And the dogs mauled the kid to death. Why a mother would do this is beyond me. And why we keep wild animals in zoos is another topic of discussion but anyway number 10 on the list okay wait before you go so uh you said pounds per square inch that is the measurement unit that's used uh in this survey correct pounds per square inch and it's measured or estimated Uh, do you have like i said you've got a brave lab technician yes brave lab technician is right but in this article somewhere talks about national geographic measures the bites of these animals somehow I don't know how. Okay. Anyway, number 10 on this list is the king of the jungle, the lion at 600 PSI, pounds per square inch. Now, one reason the lion is not higher in the list might be that their hunting habit, strangling its prey by biting its trachea, lacks the need of a strong bite. Number nine on the list is the tiger at 1,050 PSI. The tiger is the biggest species of the cat family. They can reach 3.3 meters and weigh up to 300 pounds. Like the lion, the tiger tends to bite the throat of their prey to cut the flow of air and blood to the animal's head, but their bite is nearly twice that of the lion. Peter, did you know that there are more tigers in captivity than there are in the wild? Yes, I know that. How sad is that? It's very sad. Number eight on the list spotted hyena with a bite force of 1100 psi with its strong bite force the spotted hyena can crush giraffe bones it's this scavenger behavior of the spotted hyena which is the most likely reason for the hyena's strong jaw since it needs a powerful jaw to get to the marrow inside the bones left by lions and other big predators although they look like dogs the hyena is actually more closely related to cats Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Number seven on the list of the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites is the grizzly bear at 1,200 pounds per square inch. You guessed a bear, right, Peter? Yeah. The grizzly bear is the North American subspecies of the brown bear, and it's known for its incredible size and aggression. They can weigh from 600 to 1,000 pounds. 
and the grizzlies considered more aggressive than any other bear. Because of their large size, grizzly bears are unable to climb trees, but despite their large size, the grizzly can run up to 34.8 miles per hour. Grizzlies mostly feed on berries and nuts, but do hunt. They can pose a danger to humans if they're surprised or if the humans get too close to their cubs, but very rarely, if ever, they go after humans for food. Number six on the list is the gorilla. 1300 PSI force bite. Gorillas are vegetarian and their jaws are primarily adapted to chew strong, hard plants like bamboo, which have given them incredibly strong jaw and neck muscles capable of punching a 1300 PSI bite. Right, that's where they get their fiber. Right. They are our closest relatives after the chimpanzee and their numbers are shrinking rapidly with only 700 mountain gorillas left in the wild. Gorillas tend to be gentle creatures and sometimes are referred to as gentle giants and do not pose a threat to humans. And I'm guessing that no one messes with them in the jungle anyway. You better believe that. Number five on the list of the top 10 most powerful animal bites is the hippopotamus. I think you said that one too, Peter. Hippopotamus has a bite force of 1,821 PSI. Yeah, the 21. Someone's there measuring this thing. That just, <laughs> not no, 20 just, and not just, 22. 1,821. Oh, yeah. The hippo is another big, powerful herbivore. The hippo is one of the most feared animals in Africa, being highly territorial and aggressive. It's been known to knock over small boats. The word hippopotamus comes from the Greek water horse due to the hippopotamus's fondness for water. The hippo's closest cousins are whales and cows. Wow, whales and cows. You know, it's interesting to picture them as, a, as aggressive, especially the way they're depicted like in cartoons and in children's toys and stuff like that. They're so friendly. You just want to hug them, right? I know. Little right. kids standing on its I know, like, nose. I know. Oh, so nice. <laughs> I want to kiss a hippo. No, don't kiss a hippo. Number four on the list is the jaguar. Yeah. 2,000 PSI. The jaguar has the strongest bite force of any cat. The jaguar kills by biting the head of its prey. The jaguar comes from the Amerindian word jaguar, which means he who kills with one leap. Wow, that's a good word. Number three on the list, American alligator, 2125 PSI. The American alligator is one of only two species of alligator left in the world, the other being the Chinese alligator. With an estimated population of 5 million, 1.2 million live in the state of Florida. Its range includes Florida, Texas, Louisiana, North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. They share territory with the crocodile. Their diet consists mainly on fish, turtles, and small mammals. Number two, saltwater crocodile, 3,700 PSI. <laughs> Peter, do you know the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? Oh, I know there are many different... I used to know it. I forgot them Yeah, all. there are many differences. Both are semi-aquatic reptiles with extended snouts, and they come from different parts of the world. Some physical differences might be in their snout, mouth, and nose. Crocodiles have long, narrow, V-shaped snouts, 
and the nose of alligators are wider and U-shaped. They have color differences too. The typical crocodile tends to have a coloration that is olive brown hue in color and alligators have a darker, almost black appearance. Louis, I remember when I was a medical intern, the first place they sent me was down to Homa, Louisiana, which has got like an elevation of like zero. I was working at the county hospital down there and uh, I was exercising and running along the roads and there's this black debris on the ground and I keep on running past this black stuff and and then I'm realizing it's alligator roadkill is what I'm... And then I'm realizing, how did this get up here? It's a couple of feet above the the swamp that I'm running on. And so I stopped running on the streets. The strangest thing to have that realization that you were surrounded by these things as you're running. So I just didn't do that anymore. Are you dreaming of alligators chasing No, no. Fortunately, that doesn't haunt me like uh, the test I forgot to study for. Right. Or the building in which you forgot your classes being taught in. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to number two, this is the saltwater crocodile. And we were talking about how these pounds per square inch of force gets measured. National Geographic apparently has figured out a way to do this. And they measured this crocodile bite force of 3,700, yet they only measured a few smaller crocodiles. National Geographic claims that if this number were to be translated to 20-footers, which do exist, the number could be higher than 7,000 PSI. Mm-hmm. These monsters are found from eastern India to southeast Asia and northern Australia. Number one on the list of the most powerful animal bites in the world is the Nile crocodile at 5,000 PSI. Nile crocodiles tend to be about the same size as the saltwater crocodiles, and their bite seems to be in the same range, could be interchangeable when it comes to being placed on this list. Nile crocodiles eat mainly fish, but like the saltwater crocodile, they will attack anything that crosses its path, including zebras, birds, and even small hippos. Okay, there you go. The most powerful animal bites. Hmm. So the biggest lesson to learn from all of this? Stay in your house. <laughs> Don't be the lab technician for National Geographic responsible for measuring these animal bites. That's too. Peter, let's see how well you were paying attention to me. Hmm. Why should I start now? What do you do if you come in contact with a grizzly bear? Do you try to outrun it or climb a tree? Okay. You can't outrun it. You have to climb a tree. Exactly. Okay. Very good. You remember, grizzly bears can run up to 35 miles per hour. But you need to know it's a grizzly bear and not a different kind of bear. That's a good point. Yeah. Which animal comes from the word meaning he who kills with one leap? The jaguar. Yes, that's right. Yes. Jaguar. Remember? Remember the guy from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? He said the jaguar. Okay, Peter. In which state would you most likely come across an alligator? Florida. Right. Five million alligators in the wild. 1.2 million in Florida. Very good. Would you rather be approached by a Tasmanian devil or a gorilla? Oh, approached by. mm, uh, That's a trick question. I'm going to say that the Tasmanian devil, maybe, because it could bite me but not kill me. No, you oh. weren't listening. Tasmanian devil has the most powerful bite relative to its body size. Yes. Gorillas are known as the gentle giants. But he but can you, still crush me. I know. You wouldn't want him to sit on you. <laughs> okay. My parents were recently in a sanctuary in New Zealand, and they saw a rescued Tasmanian devil. They said the guide said not to... Don't try to pet it. Right. It's going to bite your hand <laughs> off. Don't try to pet it. 
What is the plural for hippopotamus? Oh, hippopotamuses. I think so. Hippopotamuses. That's what I've been saying. Oh, okay. And last one. Good. Which wild cat would you least want to hug? I would not want to Lion, yeah. tiger, or jaguar. <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, wow, I'm going to say tiger. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a personal question. Personal question. I'd like to hug them all, especially a lion. <laughs> and especially after the sedation from the dart gun. I'm okay with that. You know, a little touch. Okay, Peter, you're sort of paying attention. Well, I was paying full attention. I just don't remember okay. the difference. Okay. Thank you guys for paying attention to me, at least. And don't go away. More great stuff right here on Animals Today. Welcome back to the show. February is National Pet Dental Health Month. So let's talk about that. Brushing your dog's teeth is a little like the way people view flossing their own teeth. You know, it's important, but you never really do it often enough. Maybe you're more disciplined than I used to be about brushing your dog's teeth, but when you had to watch your dog go through painful dental extractions, not to mention the sting of pain for those extractions, it's easier to get motivated and sustain a good oral hygiene regimen, however tedious it may be. Josie was a wonderful, sweet dog, the second dog Peter and I had together. I first spotted Josie during one of my morning runs, way back in the early days of our marriage when my knees were happy to run five to seven miles at a time. And so as I was running past a public golf course in my area, I spotted her sitting by the maintenance area. It was easy to tell that she didn't really belong there, and automatically I diverted my run toward her and struck up a conversation with one of the employees. I learned that this dog, who might have had some collie and shepherd in her, but looked mostly like a tamed wolf, had been hanging around the golf course for a few days and was being fed scraps of food by the workers. No one knew where she came from, and no one seemed to care much what would become of her, so our meeting was fortuitous, to say the least. I ran home, got in my car, drove back to the golf course, and with not much difficulty was able to coax this scraggly, long-haired, dirty dog into my car. Of course, there was no collar, and we learned later there was no microchip either, but now she was my responsibility, and by extension, Peter's. But I have to tell you, even as I was driving her home, I had a feeling that Josie might become our newest family member. That's how precious she seemed to me at the moment. She knew she could trust me. We had her evaluated the next day after spending the night quietly quarantined in our extra bedroom. Our family vet found that she had two previously broken legs and an injured snout. It was so heartbreaking and infuriating to realize that this gentle bean had been so badly abused. But there was more. The vet also determined that she had multiple abscess teeth and suggested we see a dentist, which we did a few days later. By that time, Josie had indeed become part of our family. After a good grooming, she was stately and a real beauty. 
Paco, our Doberman Shepherd mix at the time, accepted her at once, as did Peter, who was starting to realize what it's going to be like being married to a dog and cat rescuer. And this all occurred early in our marriage in its first year. Fortunately, Peter has stuck around for many subsequent animal adventures. But back to the dentist, who regrettably confirmed that many of Josie's teeth needed to come out. The procedure occurred shortly thereafter, leaving her with only about half of her teeth remaining in a sore post-operative course. But she seemed to quickly heal up, and as far as we could tell, she never really missed her teeth. Josie lived six more years with us, well into her teens. We were so grateful to have her be part of our family for so long, and what a wonderful chance to save this dog from who knows what. But... Thinking back about how she must have suffered with her mouth filled with abscesses still saddens us. And even to this day, it somehow motivates us to keep up with the oral hygiene with whatever dogs we have in our family. So most authorities recommend daily brushing, and I'm not going to restate too much of what is readily available to anyone who does a little research, but daily brushing is the main thing you can do to promote good dental hygiene. Now, concentrate on brushing the outside and the chewing surfaces, and don't really worry much about the inside surfaces as the tongue keeps those clean. And if your dog is new to this, start gently and don't try to get it all done the first time around. And you might want to start with your finger, like just put a little peanut butter or cream cheese on your finger and gently massage the teeth and gums of your dog. Make sure to use dog toothpaste. Now, this is very important. Do not use regular human toothpaste for your dog. Most human toothpastes include fluoride, which is extremely poisonous to dogs. And in addition, a lot of toothpaste contain the sweetener xylitol, which is also poisonous for your dog if ingested. You can find toothpaste formulated for dogs at Petco or PetSmart. And just keep up with it. Make it part of your routine. A little treat afterwards is certainly helpful. Our dogs simply like the chicken or peanut butter toothpaste we've been using, and that seems to be reward enough to keep them coming back the next time around. Our latest pit rescue, Skye, is not too fond of the process yet, but she's coming along. One trick Peter discovered as we were introducing her to brushing would be to wait until we came back from a long walk or after a tiring session of ball fetching. Skye's much more inclined to sit still for the procedure while recovering or, or resting after a decent amount of exercise. And of course, as you know, early intervention for your dog, should he or she show any signs of mouth problems or disease, is really important for so many reasons. And things you would look for might include yellow or brown tartar that forms a crust along the gum line, teeth that appear to be misaligned, missing teeth or chipped teeth or loose teeth, your dog stops eating or stops chewing on favorite toys, bleeding gums or red inflamed gums, any unusual appearance to the mouth such as growths or bumps, compulsive nose licking or excessive drooling, and finally, if your dog develops bad breath. Now, a lot of people think it's normal for dogs to have bad breath. Not true. I mean, it might not smell like a bed of roses, but a foul smell coming from your dog's mouth might signify serious health risk with the potential to damage not only your pet's teeth and gums, but its internal organs as well. So if any of these problems are observed, a trip to the vet is definitely warranted. When it comes to keeping our dogs healthy, many owners overlook the importance of oral hygiene. 
According to the American Veterinary Dental Society, 80% of dogs will develop some form of oral disease by the age of three. 80% of dogs will develop some form of oral disease by the age of three. Keeping on top of your pet's dental health has lasting positive effects. Some studies suggest that maintaining oral health can add up to five years to your pet's life. So February is National Pet Dental Health Month. So now is the perfect time to call your veterinarian and schedule a dental checkup for your furry family members and try to begin the routine of brushing your dog's teeth two to three times per week. Don't go away. More great stuff right here on Animals Today. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. I am so pleased to welcome Kevin Schneider. He is the executive director of Non-Human Rights Project. And we're going to get an update from him and maybe learn about Kevin himself. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Peter. How are you? I am very well. Thanks for joining us and Happy New Year. And why don't you start by, for the listeners who are not familiar with Non-Human Rights Project, what is it? The Non-Human Rights Project is an American organization. It was founded by Stephen Wise. It began actually as the Center for the Expansion of Fundamental Rights and uh, really grew out of Steve, uh, Stephen Wise, I should say, um, out of his work uh, really pioneering this field of animal law and realizing really in the mid-'80s uh, when he was living and working in the Boston area um, that you know this thinghood, this problem, this fundamental problem that you face when you're trying to represent even the most vital interest of any non-human animal is that they are ultimately fundamentally legal things in the same way that your car or your iPad or your coffee cup are. And, uh, you know, the the contrary position uh, is to be a legal person. And and to be a legal person is, is not to have the whole suite of human rights. There's that confusion we often... Um, bump into. It's it's really just a quirk of our legal system, our common law legal system that we've developed over time 
this, uh, essentially what it is, is a rights container. That's really all that being a person is, and that's why it's perfectly logical to have a corporation be a legal person, or even uh, things now we're beginning to see claims and even treaties and laws and court cases recognizing the person status of rivers, national parks, uh, you know, various environmental features, and more to the point, uh, you know, modeled on our litigation strategy, we file what's called habeas corpus petitions here in the U.S., and they have, uh, there have been several filed throughout uh, Latin America, and uh, in, two, in 2016, in Argentina, uh, a judge ruled in favor of a chimpanzee named Cecilia and declared her to be a non-human legal person and sent her from the Mendoza Zoo to uh, Projecto Gap Sanctuary in Brazil. And so there is already in the world, and we cite this to all the courts that we're in front of, and this is really a roundabout way to say that this movement is, is real and happening, but it has not penetrated the American courts yet. So we have, uh, we began in December 2013, filed lawsuits on behalf of Tommy, Kiko, and Hercules and Leo. Uh, those are chimpanzees in New York. We chose New York to begin, uh, you know, because there are, of course, as we know, animals of all kinds of species that are in bad situations because of humans in every state, in every country, in every corner of the world. Uh, you know, we know that really to be true. So we begin uh, because we're making such a really in some ways, in a lot of ways, a very narrow argument, but it's a very deep argument because we're going into court and trying to really just vindicate the very limited personhood and very single, actually just a single right, the right to bodily liberty that's protected by habeas corpus. And we're asking for it on behalf of these chimpanzees. But, you know, everybody recognizes that once we take that, that first step, it will continue to grow, as, of course, that is the design and, and the hope and behind, you know, behind our mission. And when we began, uh, we chose New York because it has a long common law history, a long, actually helpful history of different case law, uh, dating all the way back to uh, anti-slavery efforts, uh, which, you know, right there is an example, a glaring example of how over our own history, uh, it's, it's actually a relatively new thing that all human beings mm -hmm. are legal persons because women, children, for many instances, were not persons for, you know, until the 18th, 19th century and many, um, and even later in some applications. And of course, slaves were considered legal things. And the battle to uh, end that um, actually was achieved through, after the first time, through a writ of habeas corpus in uh, what's known as the Somerset trial uh, in the 1780s in England, a common law habeas corpus petition was filed on behalf of a slave who was a legal person, and he was transformed uh, thereby. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, he was a legal thing, and he was right. transformed right. thereby into a legal person. And Steve's uh, book and, about that is uh, is wonderful, by the way. I'll just refer our listeners to to check that out. So yeah, it's called "Though the Heavens May Fall," and that's a quote from the judge, Lord Mansfield, who who made this historic decision. Because he recognized that there was, while he was, there was one human being before him who was, you know, making a just um, argument for his personhood and his rights. But he knew that, of course, it extended much further. This was, in many ways, the foundation, certainly, of 
British society and, of course, American society at the time um, being slavery. So the, the implications of it were not lost on him. And so he said, I have to rule in favor of this man and find him a legal person. Um, though the heavens may fall, right? right? And we see the same thing in our cases. We see this, it's called the slippery slope argument. You know, this this idea that, yeah, sure, we, you know, these chimpanzees are similar and they share 99% of DNA, they grieve, they use sign language, they, you know, have all of these attributes that we hold dear and recognize, you know, in, in, in ourselves as as the sources of our rights and of our liberties, and yet, still, that door has been closed to us. And why? Because they're not human. You know, for all of the legal, frankly, mumbo-jumbo, and I'm a lawyer, so I can say that <laughs> for with inside experience, it really all does come down to this arbitrary distinction, much the same way that we've seen in the past. Um, you know, we're crossing a species barrier, but the same sorts of arguments come up with respect to marriage equality and and in, in issues of gender and race and sexual orientation, you name it, yes. uh, transgender issues, you know. So really what we're up against is, I think, part of a, a larger struggle against arbitrary um, injustice. So we've been fighting these cases in New York, and we continue to fight them really harder than ever, um, really forcing this issue more and more, um, because we think the courts in the U.S. are getting it wrong. And... As you mentioned, we've just filed a case uh, on behalf of elephants in another state. We're in Connecticut now. And uh, we've been waiting for about a month and a half for a ruling on our habeas petition there on behalf of Beulah, Minnie, and Karen, who are three elephants in a traveling circus in Goshen, Connecticut. And we just received uh, a denial from the judge. So we're, we're actually just now preparing a statement to go out. We think that this is... Um, just kind of part of the larger trend of really just missing the core issues and not to go too deep into the legal technicalities, but we were in a, frankly, a way that we haven't seen in New York, um, denied both on grounds of standing. That is that we simply don't have the rights to bring this lawsuit, um, which often turns on the question of whether the person bringing the lawsuit has been injured in some way. Uh, but with habeas, it's, it's much more complicated in ways that we think this judge has just simply completely missed. And also, um, quite jarringly, the judge referred to, uh, in Connecticut, uh, referred to the, the petition as wholly frivolous on its face as grounds for not uh, allowing the case to proceed. Well, that's just brilliant. And, <laughs> Yeah, this is shocking to us because we cite that there's a tremendous, I'm speaking to you now, you know, there's a tremendous amount of interest. And this is, as I cited in other countries, you know, this is already happening. To call it frivolous mm -hmm. on its face is, uh, you know, we have some of the leading legal scholars, uh, scientists, some of the most eminent and respected people in the world on our side supporting this claim of limited personhood and fundamental rights for non-human animals, beginning with great apes and elephants and really progressing forward and growing and blossoming in all sorts of other directions. And to say that that's frivolous on its face is, is we think, just primed to, to fall. We just think that, and it doesn't discourage us, right? Because sometimes people will say, oh, you must want to give up. You, you can never do that. Again, you take a brief look at previous social justice struggles and 
their struggles. They never open the that's, door when you knock. That's the, na- yeah, that's the nature of them. Struggles right. for a reason. Right. They call them struggles for a reason. You're right. Well, and so yes. right now we're preparing our next steps. Um, we've got an appeal that's working its way up to the highest court in New York, we hope, uh, early this coming year. And in Connecticut, we frankly, uh, it's very much a moving situation at this at this moment, but we should have some updates on our website soon, uh, which is nonhumanrights.org. And uh, you can follow us on all the normal channels and, you know, we'll, we'll keep folks updated as soon as we know what the next step is. There's a wealth of information on the website and... And Kevin, uh, you're new to the organization. Why don't you just uh, give us a little bit about your background as we wrap up here? Because obviously you're super proficient in this area. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and, and that probably speaks to the fact that I'm not so new. Um, I actually began volunteering with NHRP about eight years ago um, before I went to law school. And really, Steve was um, among the the main inspirations for me to go to law school, this oh, wow. idea that I could devote... Uh, you know, be a lawyer for animals is something that was always very, that's really what what got me to uh, to go through with the whole thing. And so I uh, have been absorbing this stuff for quite some time and have been full-time executive director just a little over two years. Got it. So okay. I've seen it firsthand, you know, go from, it's like that old saying of how they ignore you and then they laugh at you and then they fight you and then you win. I think that we're very much in that that cycle and they're they're done laughing which means that they're they're being forced to fight now which i think says a lot that's kevin schneider executive director of the non-human rights project thank you very much for coming on and we look forward to speaking with you soon thank you same here Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm great. Peter, how long have we been in production now? Oh, since 2009. Wow. We started out in Palm Springs, California, locally. That's right. And now we're everywhere. How we've grown. And remember, visit animalstodayradio.com where you can listen to all the previous shows. Animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening. So Massachusetts and a number of other states are now considering registries for animal abusers, modeling them after sex offender registries. Do you think these are a good idea? Will they stop animal abuse? The first statewide registry will take effect in Tennessee on January 1, 2016, and we will, we will be very interested in seeing what happens there. Bob Ferber, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Lori. Bob, what are the goals of these registries? The original goal of these the sex offender registries was a tool for law enforcement to help them if there was a, a, a violent, like a rape or a, a sexual attack against somebody or a child molester, they would have a tool to be able to look back at people that have already been convicted and invest, use them and investigate them, talk to them. So it was a pool of people that might be suspects. Uh, as a re- but the the the. The uh, function of it expanded when Megan's Law in California, which is rather famous law about a child uh, molester and killer, uh, 
it, it became available. People wanted to make this information available to the public. And so now this registry, and I believe it's true in a lot of other states, you can find out who has been registered as a sex offender and who lives in your neighborhood. So I think the goal is twofold. It was originally law enforcement, and then it got expanded to let people know that, you know, be cautious, somebody down the street is a convicted sex offender. Watch your children if they walk into school or something to that effect. So uh, is the analogy with these registries for animal abusers to the sex offender registries, is that appropriate? Is this an extension of that thinking? I, I think it's applicable, Peter, to uh, animal abusers and in two ways. Number one, law enforcement can use a list of animal abusers to be able to investigate other cases of animal cruelty. I have one right now where they're trying to find out somebody who, whoever mutilated some dogs and cats in a neighborhood. So they, it would be helpful if we had a registry to, so police could go back and look as, has anybody in the neighborhood already been convicted of that? But I think the way sex re- offender registries help the neighbors to know who's next door, I think with animal abusers, the key way it can help is to prevent people from getting more animals. And this means that these registries or this information needs to be available to shelters, to rescue groups, um, to uh, maybe even pet stores, although I'm not personally in favor of stores that sell animals, but if they do, maybe at least they should have access to make sure that they're not selling it to somebody who's been convicted of animal cruelty. And and breeders as well, Bob? I think we all three agree that, you know, we, we have some issues with breeders. Right, absolutely. But my feeling is no matter who it is, if you're transferring an animal to someone else, right. it would be helpful if you, whoever you are, whether you're a breeder, you're a hardcore rescuer, you're a shelter worker, to be able to know that whoever's taking the animal, at the very least, is not convicted of animal cruelty. My fear with animal cruelty is that animal cruelty laws also include things where people have done something that was, yes, it was a crime, but it's not something where they're a danger to the public. They may have, we we have a lot of cases of animal neglect where people are guilty of the crime, but they did it because they couldn't take care of their animal because of money, because of a personal situation, because of something where they delegated it to someone else, something where they, they should be held accountable, but are they a danger to somebody else? Are they somebody that all rescue groups need to know about because of maybe an isolated, uh, excuse me, an isolated incident. So we have to worry about if there's a registry, how do you define who's in that registry of animal abusers and who isn't? And right now, you know, the same with the sex offender registries. It's not really, there's lawyers and legislators haven't come up with a good way to just keep these registries to the people that we really want to know about. So I think that's what we have to figure out. No one has. Uh, and another problem, by the way, with these registries is that for privacy reasons, you can find out, for example, if there's a sex offender down the street from you in California, but you can't find out what they did. You can't find out if they were a rapist, if they were a flasher. Same thing with if you have somebody down the street that's an animal abuser, wouldn't you want to know, was it dog fighting? 
Was it beating an animal, poisoning an animal, or was it something where they didn't give their dog enough food because they were having money problems and the dog, or they didn't have the medication for an animal? Yes, I'd want to know, but either way, I wouldn't want that person living next door to me. Well, I, <laughs> and you know, and that's a fair statement. But you can see how it dilutes the, uh, yeah. the 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 effectiveness of it for law enforcement. And I agree with you know. There's an argument to be made, Lori, that the person who neglected a dog, I might want them down the street from me because maybe I could you know make sure check on them. Maybe they're not a physical danger to me. I, I've I've certainly educated a number of people in my life who have been neighbors and friends who weren't doing what I thought was the appropriate thing for an animal, and they're like, oh, thanks, Bob. Well, so, we, well I, I see your point, Lori, and I probably agree with you that I don't want any animal abusers in my neighborhood. I, you know, do I, I've had numerous people as a prosecutor who were convicted of animal abuse, but everybody agreed that this shouldn't get in the way of them being able to adopt another animal in the future, because let's say they took a course, or they took a, a class in better animal care, or they made better arrangements to make sure that when they're taking care of their sick mother, that there's somebody to care for their animal. Well, we sure, so, didn't, hesi- we sure didn't hesitate to allow Michael Vick adopt another animal. I know, and that's a really good, you know, and that involves other legislation that we've talked about on your show about if you're convicted of animal abuse, should you be allowed to adopt another animal? And uh, I think in a good way, states around the country are starting to include it in their animal cruelty laws that you can't have another animal if you've been uh, convicted of certain types of animal abuse. In California and many other states, we have laws now that are starting to prohibit people from having an animal after they've been convicted of animal abuse, especially serious cases of animal abuse. I'm very much in favor of that. But without a sex, I mean, I'm sorry, an animal abuse registry, how are people going to know? So right now in California, you can be convicted of felony animal abuse, and you can go into your local, that same person can go into most local government shelters and rescue groups and get another animal, because none of those people can find out about it. And that is probably the, the most important part of these new animal abuse registries, is that when people are uh, ordered by a judge to not have an animal, there literally is no system for enforcing that. These registries are the beginning of that. And in spite of all the issues and complications that I've talked about, I think overall it's, an, it's a very critical thing that we have to do to protect animals. Bob, we get the feeling around here also that people are ready for these and we're looking forward to seeing how it plays out in Tennessee. We'll speak with you further about it once it gets going. I think so, and, and I think that we, we all, no offense to people who live in Tennessee, but it's not a state that has been known to be a leader in animal rights and animal welfare, and I think it's very interesting and admirable that we're seeing states like this who are saying, we're sick of it. So I think that it's a really good sign for animals around the world. We agree. Thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.